Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 26th, 2023, a Monday. And why always give the dates? I think probably uh, I like to think that one day people will look back at this historically and think, what were those people thinking back then? Uh, regular viewers of the show know we have a particular interest in interviewing historians and thinking about the complexities, the maze, the labyrinth of history. A few weeks ago, we had the NYU historian, very distinguished woman, Martha Hodes on the show. She has a fascinating new book out, My Hijacking, A Personal History of Forgetting and Remembering. As a young girl, she was uh, on a plane that was hijacked by uh, Palestinian freedom fighters or terrorists, call them what you want, in 1970. And she wrote a fascinating book, My Hijacking, about what she remembers and what she forgot. Uh, it's a very personal uh, book, a very interesting memory, not just of herself, but of the Middle East. Uh, my guest today on the show, uh, Itamar Rabinovich, is very familiar with memory and history. Uh, he's an extremely distinguished historian based in Israel. He's also the former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, written many books all about history, one way or the other, focusing on Middle Eastern history. And he has a new book out, uh, Middle Eastern Maze, Israel, the Arabs and the Region, 1948 to 2022. I'm thrilled that he's joining us from his home in Tel Aviv in Israel. Uh, Itamar, do you remember what you were doing back in 1970? Can you remember that far back? Uh, yes, I can. I was at uh, UCLA uh, writing my PhD in modern Middle Eastern history, specifically the history of Syria. And I was following these, these very eventful days. The hijacking led to uh, a decision of King Hussein at the time in Jordan to take on the Palestinians, were followed by the death of Abdul Nasser, the great leader of pan-Arab nationalism in uh, Egypt. Um, the Israeli-Egyptian ceasefire, the so-called uh, Rogers Initiative. Very, very eventful days. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I was talking to Martha Hodes is that uh, she one of the things she remembers on the plane are people arguing with the terrorists. These were uh, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine um, activists, leftists, Marxists, who would argue with uh, the people they hijacked. I don't suppose that would happen now. Um, you call your book, uh, Itamar, the, Middle, the new book, The Middle Eastern Maze. But as I said, uh, the thing that comes to mind rather than a maze is a labyrinth. Borges, is, of course, wrote a wonderful book on labyrinths. What do you mean by a maze? What, what is so maze-like about the Middle East in you historical terms? The verb amazing, the amaze, amazing, the, 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 the verb amaze uh, and the adjective amazing come from maze. Um, it is a very confusing place, uh, very complex, contradictory forces at work. Uh, actually, labyrinth uh, could be interchangeable uh, with, uh, with maze. Uh, there, is a, there is a book on Middle Eastern diplomacy called the Anglo-Arab Labyrinth. The, the famous or infamous uh, Sykes-Picot agreement on 
partitioning the Middle East after World War I. So um, I might as well have used labyrinth, but somehow maze came to mind first. When you write as a historian at Itamar, when you write a book like Middle Eastern Maze, Israel, the Arabs in the region, 1948 to 2022, do you see yourself as, as not just a historian, but a, 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 pig, a, a figure who's been involved in the process, an Israeli ambassador to America, a man who wrote a biography of Yitzhak Rabin, who you knew very well. Do you see yourself as an outsider or an insider to this maze? In other words, can the historian escape the maze, the labyrinth, or are they part of the process and the problem and the complexity? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a challenge precisely because of what you say. I, I was a participant. I think it was a privilege, not just as a diplomat uh, navigating or participating in navigating the American-Israeli relationship, the signing of the Oslo Accords with the Palestinians, but my main, uh, my main contribution to, to the peace process uh, in the early 1990s was uh, my role as chief negotiator between Israel and, and Syria. So Syria is a country I, I wrote a lot about, my PhD and uh, other works. Um, and I thought at the time, and I still think, that it was a privilege to be given the task of trying to end the conflict between my country and Syria. And I add to that, I was chosen to, to that task by Prime Minister Rabin because I was a Syria expert. I really became a Syria expert after years of negotiating with them. This is how I really learned how Hafez al-Assad and the Syrian system worked out. And then... Uh, directly to, to a question. So when I write about this, I try to put my historian's uh, head or cap on my head, uh, distance myself from uh, my own participation in the course of events, and try to look at it as objectively as I can. There's never 100% objectivity in writing history that I learned, but as much as I can. Yeah, I'm reading from... Between the lines there, Itamar, uh, I think you know as well as I know that that's very hard to even get close to 100%, maybe even 50%. You've written a couple of interesting books previously on one called The Road Not Taken, Early Arab-Israeli Negotiations, and one specifically on the Israeli-Syrian negotiations, which you were involved in, The Brink of Peace. Do you, when you can't sleep at night, although you don't look to be the kind of man who doesn't sleep at night, do you sometimes think, I wish I'd done this or that? I could have perhaps brought about this incredibly elusive piece that everyone, it seems, has been looking for for more than 60 or 70 years. Okay. Uh, so the, the first book, uh, the, um, the Road Not Taken, is a purely academic book. It, it was written on the 1948 49. Uh, efforts to end the, the first Arab-Israeli war with uh, peace or settlement. And that was purely academic. There was nothing for me to regret or to, to rethink. Well, you but, can regret as an Israeli. Um, yeah, because, um, you know, our founding father, David Ben-Gurion, at the end of the 1948 war, did not seek a peace settlement because a peace settlement would have involved massive, massive, concessions, and he thought that he could wait a bit. He then regretted it, and in 1949 tried to make peace uh, agreement with Jordan and with Egypt, but then 
in a way it was too late. So there was something to, uh, to regret. And that's uh, frankly why I chose the title The Road Not Taken based on the famous uh, poem by Robert Frost. When you walk in the, in the woods and you, uh, the, the, the road bifurcates, you, you take uh, one option. And then when you walk along that path, you ask yourself, did I make the right choice? So obviously there were things to, uh, to regret. Now, as for the second book, the, the Brink of Peace, based on my own role as a negotiator with Syria, my account of the negotiation. The thing is this, I was a negotiator. I was a, a, an envoy of the prime minister. I was an ambassador later in Washington and did both uh, tasks at the same time. Uh, the decisions were not mine. Uh, it was my, uh, well, let's say I, I came out of my experience as a negotiator with the firm conviction that uh, fateful decisions, and, uh, such as giving up territory, in this case, the Golan Heights, uh, could only or should only be made by people who are elected to office. It's not the, the role of officials or bureaucrats to make these decisions. It's up to people like uh, Isaac Rabin at the time, Shimon Peres, Benjamin Netanyahu, Ehud Barak, and so forth, who were given a popular mandate and, and have the moral and political authority to make the concessions necessary for coming to an agreement. Making peace is a hard thing, isn't it, um, Itamar? What, what, why, why uh, and excuse the naivety of this question, um, why has it been so hard? Uh, there's been peace in Northern Ireland, peace in the Balkans, peace, it seems, almost everywhere except in the Middle East. What is the problem? Uh, everybody, you, you, behind you, there's a photo of you, I think, with uh, Bill Clinton. Numerous American presidents have come to power, have staked some of their prestige on making peace in the Middle East. They've all failed. Why is it such a problem? Uh, the problem is there. I mean, not, not all failed. I think Nixon and Kissinger did very well together in the 70s. Jimmy Carter did very well in Camp David I when he brokered the peace between Israel and, and Egypt. Um, others, uh, the Bushes and Clinton and so forth, uh, were less successful. Obama, of course. Um, uh, the, uh, the answer is this. This is a, a, a unique conflict. Look at it. I mean, Israel is now a country of about 9 million people, two of them, 2 million Arab, Israeli Arab, 7 million Jews in, in Israel an Arab world of well over 300 million. And many Arabs, many Palestinians, uh, ask them, tell themselves, time is on our side. The numbers are on our side. There's nothing wrong with our genes. One day, we will catch up with the Israelis and number will, numbers will talk. So they don't, they don't want to make, uh, particularly the Palestinians, the final concession. What is the final concession? Is to give Israel finality said, uh, when Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Ministers uh, like Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert laid on the table very far-reaching proposals to the Palestinians, 94-95% uh, of the West Bank, connection to Gaza and so forth and so forth, uh, Abu Mazen at, and of course Arafat at Camp David declined to sign on the dotted line because they refused to give Israel finality and agree that this is it, end of claim, 
no more uh, right of return or the uh, claim of, uh, of return. This is the end of the conflict. No Palestinian leader was either willing or able to, uh, to do that. And I think it goes back to the discrepancy between uh, an Arab world of more than 300 million and uh, a small Jewish population in Israel of 7 million Jews. The way you're presenting it, you suggest that the fault, if that's the right word, for the failure to make peace lies exclusively in the Palestinian camp. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I mentioned uh, two pivotal points when uh, Ehud Barak and uh, Ehud Olmet put these uh, far-reaching proposals on the table. In the past few years, uh, we are governed by right-wing governments. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, openly uh, gave up the, uh, or declines now the option of a two-state solution. We have uh, a very extreme right-wing uh, government. Uh, we have important ministers in the government who want to annex the West Bank, creating a one-state reality. And as an Israeli, very unhappy uh, with that. So uh, we have our share of blame. The one narrative you always hear, particularly amongst, shall we say, right-wing Israelis and right-wing Zionist Jews around the world, is that the Palestinians are always offered a decent peace, which they turn down, and the next peace is worse than that, and then they turn it down, and then they keep on turning the peace down. Is there any truth to that argument, that had they taken the early pieces that they were offered, thing, that, that their lives, their world, their state, their peoples would be infinitely better? Unfortunately, it's, uh, unfortunately, it's correct. I mentioned before, Ehud Olmert's uh, proposal in 2008, if you open Condoleezza Rice's memoirs, uh, she writes that she was stunned twice, once when she saw what he was offering, and the second time when she found out that Abu Mazen did not, uh, did not take it. Um, and then, uh, of course, let me talk briefly about the Abraham Accords and the recent uh, development. They indicate that the Arab world, the parts of the Arab world, are also becoming tired with the Palestinian, the way the Palestinians run their affairs. And the, uh, the Emiratis and other Arabs decided that, uh, with all due respect to the Palestinians, they need to make their peace with Israel and move on. How great a man um, Itamar was Yitzhak Rabin. How brave a man? How much of a risk did he take? And how consequential in the last 40 or 50 years was his assassination? Well, um, he... Uh, I don't dispense the, the term great uh, easily, but he, he was. Uh, what, what made him uh, a leader and a statesman, and then a, a statesman as a higher rank than, uh, than leader, uh, was the fact that he had a vision, and that the vision led to very important decisions, and that he had the courage to make the decisions, and the political skill and ability to get them through his uh, constituency or uh, or people. This is how the Oslo Accord was signed with the Palestinians. This is how peace was made with Jordan. And who knows uh, how it would have continued had he not been assassinated. And he was assassinated by the extreme right wing in Israel precisely because they identified um, that he was the only leader who wanted to make the peace and had the uh, political muscle to get it through. There's a uh, 
you know, the assassination uh, is on film. There was an amateur uh, video photographer from across the square. Uh, and you can see on the video that the, uh, Shimon Peres came down from the rally uh, that preceded the assassination on the steps before Rabin, a couple of minutes before Rabin. And you can see that the killer is contemplating, should I kill Shimon Peres or not? And he makes the decision not to kill Peres because he knew that if he killed Peres, he wouldn't be able to kill Rabin. And the main thing was to kill Rabin, he did. And of course, it was a deadly blow to the peace process. Given that the essence of Israel's success and its, I guess, its failure, its controversy lies in being opposed to what it calls terrorism, how can this terrorism of the assassination of Rabin, how could it have been such a success? How could Israel collectively have allowed itself to enable the success of this form of terrorism? Well, there were two, uh, two issues here. One was the naive belief that ran through the whole system, beginning with Rabin himself, is that a Jew will not kill the prime minister. The, the concern was with uh, Arab or Palestinian terrorists, not with Jewish terrorists. And secondly, uh, our uh, highly regarded security service, the unit for VIP protection, abysmally failed in protecting the, uh, the prime minister. Um, after the assassination, uh, the next prime minister, Shimon Peres, has already been uh, protected in a way similar to the protection of the president of the United States. Uh, but it was not the case with uh, Rabin. His back was not protected. And uh, this was a, a terrible, uh, terrible failure. Since then, of course, the prime minister and other dignitaries are very heavily protected. Yeah, it's the most tragic of all historical narratives. You've mentioned um, Nixon and Kissinger, you suggested they had some success, um, as well as Jimmy Carter, even Clinton, who you knew. You mentioned um, Obama perhaps was less successful. We had a, another Middle Eastern analyst, Stephen Simon. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Uh, he has a new book out, uh, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East. I think he, like you, is at Brookings. Um, is, is Simon right? Has America essentially retreated from the Middle East, Itamar? No, retreated is, uh, I think, too strong a term. Uh, the term coined by President Obama at the time was pivoting away from the Middle East because... That's a horrible the, word, pivot, I yeah, think, isn't it? Don't right, you? But, but he introduced the term, um, indicating uh, two considerations. One was that because of the end of the Cold War and the lesser dependence on uh, Middle Eastern oil, the Middle East became less important while... the Chinese challenge in the uh, Pacific, Asian Pacific area became the number one issue for the United States. What we have learned uh, since then is that actually the, the Cold War is uh, back in the Middle East, Russia itself, when it invaded uh, Syria and, and intervened in the Syrian civil war. China has now become much more active. It brokered the uh, Saudi-Iranian Rapprochement. Yeah, and the Saudis are at uh, China's Davos now, and uh, 
So in uh, you know China, um, uh, the Saudis are increasingly a controversial state. So go on. Right, and and of course Middle Eastern energy, given uh, let's say the war in Ukraine, the uh, need to disengage from dependence on uh, Russian gas, and therefore Middle Eastern gas and oil are again uh, very prominent. So uh, the United States is still in the Middle East. Is still in investing in the Middle East. Not to the same extent that uh, we were used to in earlier decades, but definitely has not left the Middle East. You've taught uh, history a lot. You've probably graded a lot of papers, uh, Itamar. What grade would you give America in the Middle East, uh, especially given the catastrophe of the Iraq war? We've done many shows on that. And their failure, Obama's failure to intervene in uh, the Russian involved Syrian uh, war, which seems to be a prelude for Ukraine. Uh, Joby Warwick wrote an excellent book, Red Line. Would you give America in the 21st century, could it get even a C or would it be an F? No, it would be a B, I think. Well, that's, I think that's the grade that uh, nobody objects to. Yeah, I, no, I'll tell you why. Because uh, I think it's impossible to get an a, an a when you are a great power that wants to manage another part of the world it's it, it it never works you can't i mean you know in the days of empire where you couldn't uh, manage or run india from london uh, or uh, you know vietnam from uh, from paris th these days are gone it's impossible to to manage another part of the world from a western capital it's a it's a huge task the huge domestic uh, issues competition and so forth so you have to, I assume that it could never be an A. There were failures, but there were also achievements. Listen, we are discussing the Arab-Israeli peace process. I mentioned Kissinger and Nixon. They began in the 70s. It led to the first Arab-Israeli peace treaty with Egypt in 1979. We now have a second full-fledged peace treaty with a neighbor, with Jordan. We have the Abraham Accords. You know, there's also a positive record. The two models, it seems, in the last 10 years for American policy in the Middle East, the professorial Obama, censorous, academic, intellectual, and the, the Trumpian approach of sending his Jewish son-in-law to um, the Gulf to make peace. Which of those do you think are should be models for Biden, who seems like most other things to be in a bit of a muddle? Um, well, neither, neither. Um, uh, Obama, uh, Obama's foreign policy uh, legacy is debatable. Uh, I, I would refer... In another word, uh, Itamar, you're giving him a, maybe even a D when you say it's debatable. Well, you know, I, I, I frankly don't enjoy, don't relish, uh, don't see myself as uh, dispensing grades to US uh, presidents. We did it earlier and uh, let's skip the, the grading part, but he himself gave a lengthy uh, interview to The Atlantic, to Jeffrey Goldberg, a, a, a couple of months before he left office, trying to basically defend his Syria policy, which is a, a, a very interesting and instructive uh, document, but uh, it, it was not, uh, particularly the Syria policy um, was a failed policy. And Trump, again, was not an example of a president uh, who could run foreign policy, mentioned his uh, very strange relationship with uh, Putin. Uh, 
uh, you know, a, a president who tells uh, the president of Turkey, Erdogan, on the phone, if, ah, if you want Syria, you can have it, leading to the uh, uh, resignation of his uh, defense secretary, and so forth and so forth. But uh, the Abraham Accords are his, uh, uh, his major achievement in, in the Middle East, and it was an achievement. I have to give it to him. He invested American capital. Um, it would not have happened but for um, what he invested with the Emiratis and with uh, Morocco and, and Sudan. And when his legacy is uh, tested and written, uh, this, this obviously will uh, stand out as one of his uh, not too many achievements. Uh, Itamar, um... Has the Middle East as a term, in terms of this maze or labyrinth, has it expanded uh, between 1948 and 2022? Uh, the subtitle of the book is Israel, the Arabs and the region. But of course, the region is made up of more than just Israel and the Arabs. We've done, um, uh, you, you, you talk not just about uh, Arab-Israeli relationship and the Arab Middle East, but also um, about uh, Iran. We did a show with Kim Gattas recently. Uh, she has a prize-winning book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. We've done shows, lots of shows also on Turkey, and particularly with my friend Soli Ozel. I was just in Istanbul a couple of weeks ago. Has the concept of the Middle East expanded, or was Iran and Turkey, were they always relevant in the Middle East, even back in 1960? 48. Yeah, well, actually, it's centuries earlier. So that one of the main theses in the book is, let's call them the return of uh, Iran and Turkey, because, uh, of course, if you go back centuries, the Ottoman Empire and the Persian Empire uh, were dominant in the region and controlled a uh, large part of uh, the region or most of, of the region. But during much of the 20th century, they, they were not part of the system. Turkey at the time was looking to the West, wanted to, to join the European uh, community and become a European country. It, it was rebuffed. And uh, Iran was preoccupied with domestic issues, with the uh, pressure of the Soviet Union. Uh, that changed first when Iran underwent the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1979, was taken over by the Ayatollahs and wanted to export it's a, a revolution and the natural market with the Shiite communities in the Middle East. And having been successful, it now seeks hegemony in the Middle East. Turkey being rejected by Europe was looking for influence, what we call neo-Ottomanism in its immediate environment and is now active uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, in, in the Gulf, in uh, Libya, uh, in East Africa, and again, a very ambitious country. So you now have three non-Arab countries, say Turkey, Iran, and Israel, as the strongest uh, military actors in, in the Middle East. And you have an Arab world very much in disarray, looking at all of this uh, with a sense of uh, disappointment. Does that represent an opportunity or a threat for Israel? A lot of people believe especially, I think, the, the current government of Israel, conservatives in America, that Iran represents an existential threat to Israel. Do you believe that? 
I don't, I don't use the term existential lightly. I, I think it's a mistake by Israeli leaders to say, to, to use the term existential. What kind of a message uh, does the prime minister have for his own population when he speaks about existential threat? Why should young people want to live here if the country is under existential threat? If Iran, the reference, of course, is to Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. Let us say that Iran crosses the line and obtains the, the bomb and the, the means to deliver it. Well, Israel has the, the second strike capability and more than capability, massive capability. The Iranians know that. They would not rush to use nuclear weapons against Israel. It will still be a game changer if uh, Iran becomes uh, a nuclear power because it is active uh, all over the region trying to destabilize and acquire influence. And I think the world should uh, mobilize to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons. But it is, it is a threat. Turkey is not necessarily a threat. Uh, our relations with Turkey are now reasonable, if not, uh, if not very good. Uh, Turkey and Iran are potentially adversaries. Uh, Turkey is a Sunni Muslim country. Iran is a Shiite Muslim country. So uh, there is a lot of room for creative diplomacy here. Um, one of uh, one uh, um, Itamo, we've had so many shows, as you can imagine. I I'm sure you're 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 sick of these sorts of shows on Arabs and Israel's. One with Anthony Lowenstein, uh, an American, uh, uh, sorry, uh, an Australian-based uh, anti-Zionist writer, and you, he has a new book out, The Palestine Authority. Uh, the Palestine Laboratory suggesting that um, Israel is exporting its technology of occupation across the world. Uh, and then another one in a very different way by an Israeli, Noah Tishbi, who basically argues there's no such thing as a Palestinian people. Meanwhile, everyone stuck in between are people like uh, Daniel Sokach. He's been on the show. Can we talk about Israel? How should, in your view, in 2023, in June 23, in the summer, uh, when, unfortunately, Israel seems to be, at least today, off the front pages of the newspapers. How should moderate, progressive, liberal Western Jews think about Israel? What can they do to help make peace? Right now, the, uh, the primary issue in, in Israel is not peacemaking, but uh, protecting Israeli democracy, which is under attack by uh, the extreme right that uh, controls this uh, government. And trying to get through what they call a judicial reform, which really is an effort to emasculate the Supreme Court and the judicial system. And the most encouraging phenomenon in, in Israel in recent months has been the mobilization of the civil society. Every uh, Saturday night uh, for more than four months now, uh, several hundred thousand Israelis are on the street demonstrating peacefully against it. We managed to stop um, the first onslaught. There's now an effort to uh, apply what we call the salami tactic, trying to, uh, to get this reform piece by piece. So that's where uh, Israeli uh, opinion or liberal opinion is focused. And that's, I think, where people who uh, want to, first of all, feel that Israel is still inspiring and be to help Israel should focus on. Once we get that in order and we get a government that wants to move on with the peace process, we should 
uh, continue to deal with the Palestinian issue and try to find a way of uh, moving forward on that. So the dilemma for progressives in Israel or for Jews around the world is the same as in Poland or Hungary or the Philippines or Brazil or Turkey or perhaps even Russia? It's not the same because Poland and Hungary do not face external challenges. I mean, they, they have huge domestic problems, but they are not threatened. Uh, well, polls would tell you that uh, the war in Ukraine indicates that Russia is potentially a threat to, to Poland as well, but Poland is a, a member of NATO and uh, is, is protected by, uh, by this. But uh, they, they certainly feel, uh, feel a Russian threat. But essentially, um, they can focus on domestic issues. In both cases, in Hungary, uh, even more brutally than in Poland, uh, authoritarian uh, leaders took over and uh, put in place what you call illiberal democracy. So this for us is a negative example. Israelis look at Hungary and Poland and say, we are not Hungary, we are not Poland, we will resist effectively. Final question, uh, Itamar, your new book, Middle East and Maze, Israel, the Arabs in the region, 1948-2022, of course, is a book about the primarily the Arab-Israeli conflict. You also wrote a book back in 2012, The Lingering Conflict, Israel, the Arabs and the Middle East. So in, in some ways, this is the second volume. A lingering conflict. What happens if we don't find our way out of this maze, this labyrinth? What happens if the conflict continues to linger for another 25 or 50 years, tomorrow? What will the world look like? Why should we be really concerned? Why should we be incentivized to bring about some sort of end to this conflict? Because it, it matters. The Middle East matters. It's a very important part of, of the world. The Arab-Israeli conflict is uh, an important component of the politics of the region. I mentioned before the Abraham Accords indicated that parts of the Arab world want to disengage. Or have, uh, did disengage. If Saudi Arabia joins this fray, it would be a very important step. Uh, if that happens, uh, it would be less of a problem. It would be, you know, one of the issues on the world map that are potentially explosive, but not necessarily so. Um, a complete solution, complete disappearance of the issue, I'm not so sure. Rams, if there is PC tomorrow, what are historians like you going to do? Go to the beach? Uh, <laughs> Uh, right uh, mysteries. Yeah.